grade school, my Saturday mornings, con contained a steady diet of both sugary cereals and cartoons. Something to rot my teeth and my brain at the same time, right? And sometimes it wasn't sugary cereals, it was Pop-Tarts, but I guess that's not much better than cereal. And so while I would carb load for the day of doing nothing of value, I watched Bugs Bunny fight it out with Yosemite Sam and Elmer Fudd and the other characters on Looney Tunes and do you remember Merry Melodies? Have you ever noticed how violent the old cartoons were? Bugs was always blowing something up or getting blown up. Yosemite Sam sprayed bullets everywhere he went uh, like an old western and well, the poor wild E. Coyote was busy failing to do uh, or falling to his death or being blown up or crushed to death by a giant stone or a falling house, but, of course, never really getting hurt. And then Bugs, well, he was always safe with Tweety Bird and Roadrunner. They always made it out okay. A lot of those shows were violent. You know, I remember... Batman, Adam West and Burt Ward fighting crime in Gotham City as Batman and Robin. I don't know if you're aware of this, but because of uh, the FEC, uh, yes, uh, the FEC, uh, um, FCC, FCC, um, there was uh, laws about how, how they were supposed to have these uh, things. In particular, back then, they had to put basically infomercials into these shows. So Batman would be climbing up uh, the side of a, a building with Robin behind them on a rope, and he would say to Robin something like, this is why it's so important that you brush your teeth every day. I don't know if you remember that. But then later in the show, uh, both of them would be strapped down to some conveyor belt, and there would be some giant buzzsaw, you know, and they're slowly moving toward the buzzsaw or some open furnace and um, it was always uh, them escaping at the very last moment. And of course, those are ridiculous because they're not real. But have you ever seen a real accident? Uh, I've seen car accidents. I saw a girl drive her car into a cement divider on the highway once. I once was driving along Chicago. Uh, it was bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic in that 50-mile-an-hour zone where we were all going 85. And uh, that's how you do in Chicago if you want to live. And we're driving along, and I was looking at a lady on her cell phone while her van was on fire. Could not stop. I mean, you're driving uh, three lanes, four lanes, uh, just full of traffic, and then heard a kaboom and saw parts of car go by my van uh, as I was driving. And I had gone past her ways, and I went, well, I hope that poor lady's okay. And that's all you can do. Just keep driving. I've seen those kinds of things. It, worse, motorcycle accidents. I've seen two of those, and I think those are much worse. Um, I saw one in my early 20s where a motorcycle and a truck were racing one another, and the truck won. Okay, It's always going to win that. Uh, the truck won, and the poor lady on the back of the motorcycle broke her, her leg, uh, badly broke her leg, and making a horrible screaming sound. Um, and, and actually, the truck kept driving. I chased the truck and got the license plate number and came back and let, let law enforcement know where they could find the gentleman who was involved in, in that crime. But the worst thing must be a train wreck. And I think 
Train wrecks are probably worse because they, they just are so big and so incredible. And I think that's why we use that expression when we talk about people who are ruining their lives. We say something like, she's a train wreck, or he's a train wreck. And I think people uh, have that kind, kind of converse, conversion experience. You know, they, they get saved as a, or they claim to be saved as a child and they get baptized, and but then later as an adult, they fall away from the Lord. And we look at that and we say, that's a spiritual train wreck. And I've seen people do that. And let me tell you, it's worse than any accident I've ever seen. It's hard to watch people literally destroy their lives, even though they know the truth and claim, at least on some level, to believe in it. In our modern Christian world, this is called deconstruction. The idea of rethinking everything about Christianity, rethinking the Bible and Jesus, the cross and resurrection, and then rejecting it all. Some of the most well-known Christians or former Christians, I should say, who went through deconstruction, well, like Joshua Harris, who wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, that uh, was so popular in the homeschool movement uh, about 25 years ago, and then pastored a church for about 14 years, now claims not to be a Christian. And then, sadly, Abraham Piper, that's John Piper's son, now mocks Christianity in YouTube videos on the Internet. Modern-day deconstructionists turn from their faith to worldliness and atheism. Now, in the Apostle Paul's day, he didn't call it deconstructionism. He called it apostasy. And it was a falling away from truth. And it was usually, in Paul's world, leaving Christianity and returning to or turning towards Judaism or Gnosticism. And I would say probably more Gnosticism later on. Gnosticism really doesn't come into play for about another 100 to 150 years after Paul. But proto, pre-Gnosticism, is what John writes about in his epistles. And so when you read Paul, particularly here in Galatians, what you end up finding is Paul talking about this kind of deconstruction, this kind of turning away from the truth. And you find something about the way Paul thinks because he says that this is the first point. Watching someone reject the gospel is painful. And here in the middle of chapter 4, right in the middle, uh, he has this middle section where he talks about his own emotional response to apostasy, sandwiched between two arguments against apostasy. But I want to begin with that middle section, and here he's just saying it's hard to watch this happen. It's frustrating. You look here in verse 8. How be it then, when you knew not God before you were saved, you did service to them, which by our nature no gods. They aren't even a real God. But now after you've known God, or rather are known of God, how is it you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire to be in bondage? You observe days and months and times and years. I, here's the frustrating part, Paul says. I am afraid of you, lest I bestowed upon you labor in vain. These were in danger of turning back to false worship. So before they were saved, they were doing service to an idol like slavery to false gods because idols are false gods. They are no gods, Paul says. They're not real or alive. Go back and read Isaiah 44. They're just pieces of wood. 
They're powerless beings. They're the weak and beggarly elements. And when they were unsaved, they were in bondage to them. They actually were required to go through these cultist practices, these uh, service for them, as if they were themselves in slavery. They were obedient to their false god. Now, it's not entirely clear if Paul is referring to Judaism or paganism. I, I lean toward Judaism. The context doesn't entirely make it clear if, if they're returning to Judaism. The context, the phrase no God, uh, and the context of the whole passage makes me lean toward Judaism. If not, th these are Gentiles in danger of reverting back to paganism and idolatry through paganism. Paul mentions their observation, though, of, of special days, which sounds a lot like a Jewish calendar. Of course, the pagans had their calendar, too. They had their festivals, too. But Paul is frustrated that they are deconstructing, that they are falling into apostasy. They were, do you see that in the middle here of the section? I think it's in verse 9. You turn again. They are turning back. It's almost in the Christian realm today, the way we think of repentance turning away from sin and turning toward God, they're turning from God, going back to their old ways. It's like anti-repentance. It's false. They're reverting to an old and false system. Um, and Paul says, I am so worried that all of what I did was meaningless. Or, or as one translation kind of intimates, it's like, I'm afraid I wasted my time. He's frustrated that his work had no lasting value. It's not just frustrating, it's upsetting. You look at verse 12, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as you are. You have not injured me at all. You know through infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel to you at the first, and my temptation, which was in my flesh, you did not despise nor reject it, but received me as an angel or messenger of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness that you spoke of? For I bear you record, if it had been possible, you would have plucked out, gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. They, the false teachers, zealously affect you, but not well, not to your well-being. Yes, they would even exclude you that, that you might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, not only when I am present with you, my little children of whom I travail in birth again till Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice for I am in doubt of you. He's frustrated and he's upset. These people have been close to Paul. Uh, he's referring now maybe to a possible sickness, maybe his eyes because of this reference to gouging out their own eyes and giving them to him. This, whatever it was, initiated a preaching opportunity he had to them. I, I think actually Paul is referring to having been nearly stoned to death. Um, one scholar questioned whether that would affect one's eyes. I don't know. Kneel down in the dirt. Let me throw rocks at your head. See how your eyes fare. Probably not well. Some people say this is his thorn in the flesh. Uh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him. I don't think that's it. But the Galatians received him openly at this point because they loved Paul. At least initially, they loved him enough to actually, Paul says, to, to harm themselves for his benefit. But now he says, how could have I become your enemy? 
This is, by the way, Paul, as he's talking here, it's just a, um, a little bit of what you really get full taste of when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. The Corinthians had really turned on him. But he's worried here. He's, he's preached, he's suffered, he and Barnabas had planted these churches through the southern part of Turkey, and he's afraid I did all of this and nothing now? It's all for naught? The spiritual enemy, in fact, was being counted as a friend, verse 17. And the enemy was trying to separate the people from Paul. They wanted the Galatians to join their group. And Paul was now in distress. He said, I am in pain like a woman giving birth is in pain. And he says, I wish I could be with you. I'm away from you. You can imagine his, his upsetness, not only in the fact that he is hearing that they're doing this, that they're turning away from their faith, that they are apostatizing, but he's not even with them. He can't be near them to help them. And so he's frustrated and he's upset. And I can just say to you, friends, that watching people who have claimed Christ to go back on that claim is very painful. It's just hard to watch. I can't imagine what the church where Joshua Harris was pastor must have been thinking when they found out that their pastor now was claiming not to be a believer. The man who preached Christ to them week after week was now saying, I do not even believe in him at all. And even while he was turning away from his own marriage, he, he has divorced his wife and turning away from his marriage and turning toward this apostasy. Imagine what they must have been saying to themselves, that congregation. How painful that must be to watch that happen. Some of you have experienced the pain of watching children as they get older turn away from the faith that they claimed to believe as young children. That's painful. That's hard. That's horribly difficult. And we pray for you and we pray for your children that they'll turn back to faith. It's very difficult. This is painful, Paul says. And with that in mind then, what are they doing? So remember, this is Paul's section on how upset he is, but it's sandwiched between two arguments that really is against this apostasy. And what Paul is saying, even while he's saying, I'm so upset, he's, he's arguing, he stops his argument to tell him how upset he is, how frustrated he is, he goes back to arguing. But what I want you to understand is with this kind of pain, this kind of emotional uh, frustration that Paul is experiencing now, what are they doing when they apostatize, when a person turns away from faith in Christ, what they're doing, this is point number two, they're rejecting God's blessings for a life of spiritual slavery. That's really what's happening. See, what we get from salvation is sonship. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I say that the heir, the, the inheritor, as long as he's a child, differs nothing from a servant, even though he is master of all. But he's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law in order to redeem them 
that are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And now, because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Father, Father, Abba, Father. Wherefore, you are now no more a son, but a, a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Those who rely on the promises of God are sons. Now, remember, Paul's argument up to this point, he's been arguing that the promise is better. Faith is better. Then he goes to this long section in chapter 3 saying, and the law is worser, or actually trust in the law is worse. Faith in the promise is better. Trust in the law is worse. Now he's going to explain why the promise is better. And it's better because when you believe the promise, God makes you into a son. Now this might not have been clear under the old dispensation in the Old Testament times. But he says here that the, the heir uh, resembles a young servant. You know, you, you, you just they're two children. They don't really, one doesn't appear to be the inheritor. You wouldn't know that by looking at him. He's under the authority. And in fact, he's under the authority of other slaves tutors and governors until his uh, time determined by his father. So believers in Christ were children in a spiritual sense until Christ came. But the work of Christ to redeem them that are under the law results in spiritual adoption. Now I become sons of God. I'm a son of God, not because I'm so great, not because I even deserve it but because I'm following Christ, because I'm a believer in Christ. And he has adopted me into his family. So adoption here translates into we becoming sons of God. Don't read too much into the idea of gender. Sons of God here just means inheritors, like a son is inheritor of a father. And we have the Holy Spirit just like Jesus had. Just like Jesus is the Son of God, we, have, we are the sons of God, not in the same sense as Jesus, because we're not God, but we're no longer servants. We're not in bondage any longer, spiritual bondage. We are now sons. And we now have spiritual inheritance in Christ. We call God Father. I mean, that's how we pray, right? We often pray, Dear Heavenly Father. God is our Father. And we only get that because we're in Christ. And now the blessing of the Holy Spirit of God comes to us and declares to us that we are sons. This is kind of what you see Paul developing, at least in some level, in Romans chapter 8. The same concept of what the Spirit of God is doing in our hearts as we are the sons of God, at least in relationship to suffering. That we can say all things work together for good to them who know God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predetermine that they would be conformed to the image of his son. So all the sons will look like the son. And that was something God determined before the foundations of the world, that this would be true. And so now we are actually looking at this saying, when we rely on the promise of God, we are blessed. 
Because we are sons of God. Friends, do you realize what that means? As a child of God, you can never be separated from the Father. Now, if the Father were a human father, that may not be true. Sometimes theologians try to relate or try to give us, to illustrate uh, the idea of our relationship to God as a relationship to our human father. The problem with that is it breaks down. God the Father is a father, but he's no human father. He is our heavenly father. And because he's God, I don't have to worry about him reacting to me maybe like a human father would. I guess it's possible, even for good fathers, that they do things that hurt their children from time to time. Good fathers do that. Even the good ones. But do you know the Heavenly Father never does? He never does. And so when you read this text and you realize, because I I believe in the promise, this is what he's saying. You are now in Abraham. The blessings of Abraham through Christ, the seed is given to you. I am now a son of God. And I can never be disconnected from the Father. I've been adopted into God's family. I'm I'm part of I'm one of His children. And just as in the Old Testament, those who were truly part of Israel, not not just physically so, but spiritually so, were part of God's family. So we who are in Christ, we are part of God's family, because it goes Abraham to Jesus to me. And it's not that I become a Jew. It's the most amazing thing. I I have a book that I was reading this past year where the author is actually arguing that in Galatians uh, 3 and 4, particularly that basically Christians do become spiritual Jews. And I'm going, that's wonderful sentiment. It's just the opposite of what Paul is teaching here. That is not what he's saying. I am a Christian, and I have the blessing of sonship through Christ and Christ alone. Now, what does Judaism promise? And I use that word promise on on purpose, because those who rely on the promises are God's sons. Uh, We have sonship through Christ. What does Judaism promise? Nothing but bondage. Look at verse 21 now, the second half of uh, the second part of the, of the chapter. So you tell me, you can almost see Paul verbalizing this. I wonder if he verbalized it, then later wrote it down and said, you know, that was pretty good. I'm going to write that down. You tell me, you the desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? For it is written, Abraham had two sons. Now, how many sons did Abraham have? How many sons did he actually have? Well, he had more than two. He had a whole bunch, right? But we're talking now, Paul is obviously limiting himself to this pre-early uh, Isaac situation. He's not talking about the other wife Abraham has later after Sarah, Keturah, and all the sons he had through there. He's referring to Isaac and Ishmael. He had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman is born after the flesh but the he that is of the free woman by promise, which things are an allegory 
For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which genders to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free. Which is the mother of us all. I love that. The Jerusalem, which now is. Uh, Judaism, as it stands right now, is still in bondage. But the Jerusalem that's from above is, is, is not in bondage. It's free. Which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, you thou barren that bear not. Break forth and cry, thou that travail not. For the desolate have many more children than she which hath a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. He's, he's going back to chapter 3 and he's saying, you are related to Abraham by promise. But, verse 29, as he that was born after the flesh persecuted that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what says the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be the inheritor with the son of the free woman. So then, brothers, we are not children of the bondwoman. We are children of the free. Now you look at that and go, what in the world did he just say? I know some of you are probably thinking that. It's actually not that difficult. Um, you have to kind of weed through it a little bit. Here we have two sons. And Paul says, those who rely on the law are not sons. Remember, back in verse 1, he compares two children, two types of children. You have an inheritor who's a son. He's master of all, even though he's still a child. And then you have a servant. And they, the servant, he says, is laying claim to the inheritance of Abraham as if he was a son. So you have these, these, this idea. Remember in the Old Testament, you have Hagar and you have Sarah. And Hagar served Sarah. It was her handmaid. And God had promised Sarah and Abraham a son, but it just wasn't happening. And they were frustrated. And Abraham, as strong as his faith was, was struggling. He lied a couple of times to, to protect himself. Even though God had said he would have a son, he was worried that he might even die before that happens. And then here comes along um, Hagar and, and Sarah says, you know what? This is what everybody does around us. This is the way the Canaanites live. Why don't you take my hand woman and make her your, your, my surrogate? a surrogate wife, as it were. And she will become your wife just to give us a son. So Abraham marries, in a sense, Hagar. I'm going to tell you, it's, it's convoluted. You read the Old Testament and marriage, uh, and you start getting leverage marriage. It's weird and convoluted. This is what he decides, okay? I'm going to take Hagar as a surrogate for Sarah. She will bear me a son, and we'll call that son the son of the promise. Well, that sounds nice, doesn't it? But that's not what's happening. God's, God's not happy with that at all. And Paul is proving through use of this allegory of what happens in that situation that Judaism can only promise bondage. Abraham's sons, through two wives, Ishmael and Isaac, just forget Keturah, throw her off to the side. Abraham and Isaac, or uh, Abraham and Isaac, Ishmael and Isaac, and Ishmael is through Hagar, he calls that young man the son of the flesh. Isaac, through Sarah, is called the son of the promise. So they're totally different. But if you read down, look here, down in verse 30, 
What does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. That's the problem. As these two young men are growing up now, who's the firstborn in Abraham's household? Who's the firstborn? Who might have claim on Abraham's inheritance? Well, it'd be Ishmael. And so Sarah's angry for a number of reasons. And I'm thinking Abraham's looking at her going, this was your idea. And Sarah says, I don't want her around anymore. And it's really a pretty sad story. Do you, do you remember? They give her a little bit of food, maybe a little bit of water, and just throw her out into the desert. And finally she goes and she puts Ishmael under a, a bush or a tree and she goes off a ways. And she says, I don't want to see my son die. It was just horrible. And then, and then, of course, God provides for her and provides for Ishmael. And she's the one who uh, calls on God at that point. And it's a beautiful story. It, it's not related to this, but it's really an incredible story. But, but what's happening here is there cannot be any confusion of where the line of inheritance goes. It has to go from Abraham to Isaac. And Paul is saying Isaac is the son of promise. Now, he is physically the son of promise. But remember, who's the real son of promise from chapter 3? That's Jesus. Clearly, the seed is Jesus. So when you look at the text here, Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac, Ish Ishmael is the son of the flesh, Isaac is the son of promise, and their births demonstrate this difference because Ishmael was born through human intervention. It's Hagar and Abraham and Sarah coming up with this really twisted idea that they should never have done. And Isaac, well, he's different. He's born through promise. So along come these men that they've never met. And Abraham says, go off and make some food to Sarah. And then they're talking under the tree. And the man says, you know, about this time next year, Sarah's going to have a son. And Sarah is back there laughing. you got to be kidding me. I am so old. It's never going to happen. She'd almost given up hope. But Hebrews says she judged him faithful who promised. So she does put her faith in God, and she does have a child, the child of promise. And so Paul's conclusion here in verse 28 is this. Look at verse 28. He says, now we brethren, so all the brothers in Christ, we brethren, as Isaac was, so just like Isaac was the physical child of promise, we are the spiritual children of promise. So we go through Jesus. Jesus is the promised one. And because we're connected to Jesus, we're connected back to Abraham in that sense, in that sense of promise. We are children of the promise, not uh, Ishmael. And if you understand why he's giving this allegory, if you go back to Judaism, all you're doing is you're going out to be like Ishmael. You lose your inheritance. You don't have it. Now, don't get all caught up. Were they saved before and now they're not saved? Paul's not answering the question here. He's just simply saying, if you trust in the law, you have no promise in Christ. None at all. We who trust in Jesus, we are children of the promise. And in fact, he says, the children of the law persecute the children of promise. And, and he's thinking, I think, of two things. He's still on Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. And do you remember right before Hagar's cast out, one of the reasons she and Ishmael are cast out is because Ishmael is laughing at Isaac. And it makes Sarah mad. And Sarah goes, no, that shouldn't happen. I want her out of here. 
She's done. We're done with her. Get her out. And he's thinking of that. But what other persecution is he thinking? Remember, when he was going through uh, the southern Turkey in that Gaul region, they were throwing things at his head, you know. And these were the Jews persecuting him. So he's thinking kind of maybe twin thoughts here. Uh, his own conflict and then the conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. And he's saying, even now the children of the law persecute the children of the promise. And so what's the conclusion? The children are handled in a different manner. Hagar and her son are cast out. No inheritance for them at all. Isaac, who remains, he gets the inheritance. And if you realize then the argument he's been making, you go back to that first half in the first section of chapter 4. What's the argument he's making? Salvation in Christ results in sonship. And as a son... We are an inheritor. We inherit Christ. We inherit the blessings of Christ. And now we who inherit the blessings of Christ, we have that inheritance. We've been redeemed from the law. It can no longer do anything to us. But all of you who are trusting the law, you are cast out and you are under the law and it accuses you. All it can do. It looks at you and says, you are guilty. And so if you realize, Paul has been making this argument in chapter 3. Faith in the promise is better. Faith in the law is much worse. Because all the law can do is turn against you in the end. But we who are Christians, at the end of the, chap or the, end of the chapter, he says, we brothers, we are not children of the bondwoman. We are free. We're children of of the promise. Modern and ancient deconstruction or apostasy returns people back to their original position, whether they know it or not. Joshua Harris stands before God condemned. And there were people who would say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair. It's grace. Because we who are condemned by the law have been redeemed from the law. The curse was put on him. He became the curse for us. And we are free. Watching people leave their faith, well, it's like watching a train wreck. It's terrible to see. And Paul says, Oh, please, don't you turn from your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I, I ask you to please use this passage of Scripture that's a little difficult to understand, a little bit thorny, but uh, interesting.